Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, welcome back to Book Shambles. few things to let you know about off the top. We're going to be at the Latitude Festival, July 12 to July 15. Myself and Robin will be there all weekend recording interviews with people for the Festival Shambles podcast and we'll be doing lots of live events on the 13th of July as well. Robin will be doing his stand-up show Chaos of Delight at the Speakeasy Tent in the afternoon. All these events are in the Speakeasy Tent. Then we'll be doing a panel show, uh, The Magic of the Future, with Robin and Dr Susie Gage and Dr Lucy Rogers and uh, hopefully John Higgs will be joining us for that as well and then we'll be doing a tour of the universe with Professor Chris Lintott uh, in the evening and that's going to be followed by uh, an evening of stargazing out in the field uh, the Orwell Astronomical Society are coming along they're bringing a heap of telescopes and that's going to be outside uh, Jeff Towns's secondhand book van. So you can go secondhand book shopping and then step outside and have a look at Saturn through a telescope. If that is not dialing right into our core demographic, I don't know what is. And then don't forget, we'll be doing six episodes of Book Shambles live with free admission as part of the PHB Free Fringe at the Edinburgh Fringe this year. Cosmic Shambles website has details for all these events. Uh, and our Richard Feynman documentary, All Genius, All Buffoon, that is out now, free to listen to as well at cosmicshambles.com slash Feynman100. That is presented by Robin Ince and features new and exclusive interviews with Helen Chersky and Brian Cox and Leonard Melodnov and Marcus Chown and Linda Kremenisi and it's got uh, original music from The Duelist and Grace Petrie and the FGs and lots of other stuff on there. It's a one-hour documentary. Do have a listen to that. And we've got other events uh, which we'll be announcing soon, some in London, some out of London. Uh, so keep your ear out for those on the podcast and also make sure you follow at Cosmic Shambles on Twitter or sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles. Thank you very much, of course, if you already are one of our Patreons. Your continued support is uh, greatly appreciated by everyone at Shambles HQ. And my book, the uh, which is all about kind of a mixture of uh, birth, death, laughter, inner voices and social anxiety, amongst other things, is uh, available for pre-order now from Atlantic Books. And that book is I'm a Joke and So Are You. So now on to this week's episode. So now on to this week's episode. Robin and our guest co-host again is Dr Helen Chersky and they are chatting to Dallas Campbell. <laughs> Right. right. All right. Well, this is. Not, thanks for having me. It's nice right. to see. You. I've, got, I've had. I'm like you. I had terrible insomnia. I haven't slept for about good, three good, days. Good, good, good. That's so exactly what we want. We want, uh, we want. We want something a little bit avant-garde from you. I uh, feel we're like I'm in expecting an impromptu beat now. poem. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Just only psychologically. Always for years now. I've been very delicate. Go out any minute mentally. Oh. Yeah, I feel. No, it's fine. Good. Oh. Poor I find Helen. my tweets get more interesting with them. Just canoeing, just a lovely oh. stalker canoeing, and now it's all lunatics. Well, um, that helps. I'm, yeah. I've got. I'm in a canoe in my head, right? It's all you right. Stay I'm in mentally your canoe. somewhere you else, can... you paddling stay in that canoe. somewhere. This is kind of canoeing. 
Yeah, we're a little canoe here together. I was, I kind of got interested in about, in about sort of the canoeing navigation that I know you were talking about and how astronauts find their way around. Because they did it. The, the Apollo missions they did, they did, used, well, did they use... They used sextants, sextants and they used and the, things, the yeah. stars. And then they, of course, the Apollo guidance computer, which was the great bit of technology, which made it all happen. You're listening, by the way, oh, to Dallas on. Campbell and uh, Helen Chersky, who were talking about um, our, our previous podcast today, which we recorded with uh, Kim Akao, about uh, um, canoeing and uh, astronomy and space exploration. Voyaging. Uh, but yeah. now Dallas is... This is, uh, for those of you who don't know, this is Josie and Robin's book shambles, and Josie is currently away on maternity leave. And uh, today the part of Josie Long is being played by uh, Dr. Helen Chersky, who probably Ta-da! also, like Josie, you probably like doing all that wild swimming and stuff, don't you? Yeah, it's like yeah. I swim. It's don't look. I don't. You're wrinkling no, your nose. No, what me, worries Robin. me is I always meet people who love wild nose. swimming, and then they tell me they haven't been well since they've had Lyme's disease, and I think, well, I've never come had on. Lyme's disease from wild swimming. Well, Do you go and I don't swim in. I don't swim in British ponds. <laughs> I swim in the ocean. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't swim. I don't swim anything that's got pondweed. I'd take jellyfish over pondweed any day, basically. I went scuba diving in the ladies' diving ladies' pond in Hampstead. That's very naughty of you. Well, I had. That's like a I new kind permission. of upskirting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was for. Um, we were trying to see if we could go all the way under London using underground rivers, and the River Fleet begins there. And we sort of thought, well, why don't we see if we can go? Did underwater? you get sucked down some giant plug hole? It was into a the... little bit like that. It was a bit like yeah, Augustus Gloop. So what? The, so the, actually, the, the the plug is connected to the the river. Yeah, fleet. Well, the river fleet goes all the way from Hampstead Ladies Bathing Ponds, right. all the way to the under Blackfriars Bridge. And we wanted to, we wanted to see if, if it was possible to circumnavigate. Th- to which the answer is no, oh. because the actual <laughs> it's about four inch diameter the pipe from Ladies Bathing Pond. Uh, but we but yeah we we did a, quite a bit of it, and then we had to get coming back up. It was it was a sort of slightly disappointing. Well, when, it was an um, adventure, but slightly disappointing. We had some adventure. little tracker things in Operation Ice, but yeah. little orange ping pong balls. That we was put it. them down. Yeah, yeah. It. I they was the orange the ping end. pong ball in this equation. It's good to know your role in life, isn't it? Well, the fir- anyway, we're not going to be talking about underwater swimming in uh, pipes without the required diameter, or indeed invading, uh, well, misgendering your, yourself in an attempt to, uh, much like uh, Carry On Jack, uh, invade uh, a women's pool for some kind of adventure. We're going to be talking about astronauts instead um, because uh, this will well, we start off because da- Dallas has uh, a book out uh, Ad Astra an illustrated guide to leaving the planet and uh, this is now the first thing I should talk about is you borrowed a book off me uh, when you were writing this book and it, it was a book about how to construct or indeed how UFOs were constructed it was written by a man in 1953 I think during the UFO boom and uh, he was a scientist who'd come up with this is how UFOs work this is the mechanism and there are many illustrations in there beautiful illustrations now is that your start in terms of your fascination with journeying into space is much of that also from the 1970s and early 80s that world of the unexplained Arthur C. Clarke's mysterious world the UFO it was exactly that I loved all that stuff I had it was those there was three books that came out they were published by Usborne Publishing one was on UFOs one was on monsters and one was on what was the other on ghosts mm. and that whole world I think sort of <laughs> growing up that was your education it was, well it kind of was books. I loved all that and of course well, I was, Osborne had it was their design it, it has beautiful. amazing design I absolutely yeah. loved it and that book that you're talking about the title of which escapes me uh, it, it's just the, the pictures in it are so wonderful and the ideas behind it are so wonderful so yeah I grew up with that I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s just post Apollo 
you know, going to the moon was what people did. Plus, there was all this wonderful stuff with flying saucers leaping around and monsters and ghosts. Um, and, and also the Fortean Times, which I was a great fan of when I was in my teens. I used to absolutely love reading the Fortean Times. You know, the Journal of Strange Phenomena, based on the, the work of Charles Fort, who was the who was fascinated by all this stuff, but then made no theories about what it was or whether it was true or not. But I liked all that. I, I kind of reveled in in all that kind of world of um, strangeness. So, yeah, it was... A, but, but, you know, but it, it's not... Obviously, it's not that I believe in flying saucers, but it's the, the culture that surrounds it I love and is, and is fascinating. Well, I think for a lot of people... I don't know about you, Helen, but the, you're, you're a bit younger than, than, than both of us, I think. The, uh, um, but... In like 1980s, around that time, there was still an enormous amount of just, I mean, films that there was a documentary in the movie, the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle was huge. Oh, Night, yeah. that, that and Bermuda Triangle. Because so, I get, you know, there's this one of the many theories around the Bermuda Triangle is that it's something to do with the bubble sinking ship, methane bubble yeah, sinking. I've right? heard that. And I have done so many debunkings of that because the science shows very clearly you cannot sink a ship using a whoosh of bubbles from these, right? And I have, there are, there are people that are so keen on that that they've taken videos that I've made explaining why it's not happened, cut out bits and put them in a video explaining why it's all real. Like, they're so dedicated yeah. oh, to no, the people, idea people that the Bermuda get, Triangle yeah, yeah. is a mystical, yeah. you know, difficult And it's also place. come back again. YouTube is a driver of all this kind of stuff. I went to I went to a Flat Earth convention in... in you didn't go to the one recently, Yeah, did yeah, you, I went which, to the one uh, in... Michael Marsh in, from in, the Birmingham. Uh, Merseyside Skeptics went as well. Yeah, absolutely yeah. fascinating. And, of course, all these... Did you go in like incognito? Well, I, I was—I thought, oh, this will be a bit. Oh, I'm going to go a bit of a lark to the flat Earth convention, and then I sort of went in, and then got slightly self-conscious and sat at the back. And I wish I'd sat at the front. And I sort of sat there, slightly worried in case people would know who I was. And actually, I was there with a couple of. I bumped into some very nice um, astrophysicists from Imperial who'd been invited along to do a panel discussion with the flat Earthers, and uh, yeah, it all went a bit pear-shaped, as you the, can imagine, uh, or not. Omelette shaped. You remained omelette shaped for the entire time. You showed me some of those videos from the flat earthers. Like you sat and you were like, "You have to see this. You have to see this because it's so it's it's internally self consistent. If you ignore some quite big things around the edges, well, you have to ignore lots of things. But it's yeah, it's it's just interesting. But but YouTube, like you say, has kind of slightly rekindled all these this you know these strange conspiracy theories. I'm really interested in why people believe weird things. Well, I think that's the interesting. I mean, Helen, I don't know how you feel about this, but something I was arguing about with we're not arguing actually talking about with Brian Cox, which was I think even a couple of years ago and even maybe now he still believes that but if you show people the evidence no. then eventually and this is what I think has become really clear in uh, it, now it might not be about the evidence it might be about the whole trust system whatever's gone on but the idea of an increase in the number of people who believe that the landing on the moon is a hoax uh, which very often goes hand in hand with flat earth things there's a, there's a certain kind of, that does I think seem to have taken a lot of all, well, all of us, a little bit by surprise. And uh, scientists often come up to me and go, I, I've seen some stuff on your feed about this flat earth thing. Um, so it's all a joke, well, isn't it? And you go, no, I, I mean, I don't know how you felt. Really but believe it, I, yeah. I mean, I remember 10 years ago making a little film, funny film, like your Radio 4 thing you did on the hollow earth. And I did mm. a little thing about it. Because it was just, a, you know, it's kind of a rather sort of nice, slightly bonkers mm. idea with lots of, you know, funny pictures and, <laughs> and sort of strange ideas. But then it was a real... F- no one had heard of Hollow Earth. It was a kind of very fringe thing. Did you start a, uh, I, a cult by yourself? No, I, well, I kind of bumped in. I found this book and I started reading this book about the, the Hollow Earth and about all these sort of things that were going on inside the Earth. But then it was pre-social media. There, there was no way of these people who had these ideas to find each other yeah. in, in, a, in, a, in a big way. But suddenly, because of YouTube... 
people are making these films and everyone can see them and everything's instantly shared. So you get these kind of slightly disparate groups of people who probably wouldn't believe on, the, on their own. You don't start off as a flat earth believer. I think you you, you maybe have a, a, a predisposition to buy into some conspiracy theories and then you see these idea. things and then they, then they crystallise and lo and behold you've got a flat earth convention in Birmingham in 2018. It's a very odd thing but it's an interesting thing, isn't it? But the, the, it's this thing where there's, there's basically too much to know. Like none of us can know everything. We're not, you know, back in the those, the last Victorian scientist who was also a musician and, a, you know, all they did all these other things. Like we can't do that anymore. You can't know everything humans know. And it's interesting how different people find... Like, it's almost comfort, I think, in all the things they're told they don't know might not be true. You know, there's a sort of... Um if you're told you don't know science and you don't know this and you, you're, yeah. you don't know enough of it, but you, there's these nice, friendly ideas that are very simple to explain and very sticky. They, yeah. hold, they stay in people's well, heads. Exactly, it's that story. It's, uh, that it's, story it's a good thing. story. It's a simple thing to remember. And then you go, and then there's this, and then you find a group, right? And then you've got a tribe, yeah. and it's come. It's I a... once met a taxi driver who's brilliant. He spent, he recognised me. He spent 20 minutes haranguing me about how the first the moon landing was fake, and then I sort of said something else, and like, I was getting a bit. There's only so far you can go with that conversation. Turns out he thought the second one was real. Well, it was good. only the first one he thought they'd faked. The, and that really was his way of getting of around different... the evidence. You well, there's know, also the... that we did get to the moon, but not with Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, or any astronauts you've seen that they right. died up there. You know, there's lots of different... Yeah. And all of the... But that's... A, yeah, that thing is... Intri- there's a lovely... When you mentioned the taxi driver, I remember, the, the, you're sure you know, the opening of Demon Haunted World, where Carl Sagan is picked In up a by taxi. a taxi driver, yeah. and the taxi driver wants, he says, oh, you're a scientist, I want to ask you all these questions. And he said he asked him all these questions about Atlantis, and he asked him all these questions about... You you know, kind of peculiar and very clearly fictional monsters and all of these things. And he thought, what a pity, because here is someone with a very interested mind. Here is someone who really wants to... But because of somehow the feed that they've got, and this was 20 years ago. But that's... I mean, why do you, as, as a scientist, seeing this... and. I, Interesting, I was reading a, a book, I think it's Rob uh, Brotherton, uh, you might have read Suspicious Minds. Oh, about yeah, 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 right, yeah. yeah. And I think it's in that book where he says, well, actually, if you go, you look throughout history conspiracy theories are always there he said he went through the letters pages I'm pretty certain this is in his book where he said went through the letters pages of British newspapers uh, decade by decade to see the number of letters and he said it's pretty it averages out but it does seem that maybe because we're connected now to people who we wouldn't have known they were in a little gang somewhere yeah but there does seem to be something where you go well to have this much information available and still to turn away from it. But it's also personal experience, right? So I have seen the UFO. I don't think it was an alien. I was in the um, New Mexico... I was in Mexico, I think, in the desert, and some weird V-shaped thing that was very clearly between... You know, it was, betwe- it was a beh- behind the first hill and before the second hill. It was very clearly a thing. It was very brightly lit. It was at night. You know, and it, it was a very strange thing. And I was capable of going afterwards to look up on Google that actually there's an American weird test- military testing base there, and yes, weird things do turn up. However... However, at the time, you're in the middle of a desert, you're sleeping in a tent, there's a weird thing. And I, I didn't ever think it was an alien, How, but I did say my brain needs an explanation. Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, yeah. I want to... That that can't be so far out of... I need I need that to fit into my worldview somewhere. Well, I think, so you go looking, right? Yeah. Rob's... Rob, who wrote that book, um, his whole thesis is we are all conspiracy theory. We all have a tendency at some point to kind of... This is, you know, it's part of what makes humans humans. It's part of what makes us tribal. But some people take it further. Some people... You know, there are... This, the test for conspiracy theory really is like... 
do you just believe one conspiracy theory or do you believe them all? Those big con conspiracy theories tend to encompass lots of other conspiracy theories. Like if you're, really 11, if you're a 9 11 conspiracy theory, you probably also believe in chemtrails. But that or, map, there know. must be a way of mapping that out, right? Some Venn diagram of conspiracy theories and how big the various bits are, right? Yeah. How big? Because I think some of them don't overlap. Some people have their one thing. Yeah, and then some people. Who would you have... give me an example? Because I, I have to admit, I'm interested now because I think that used to be true, and I may well be wrong about this, but I think now because of the connectivity that exists, once you've got one, very quickly you have so many other people who come into yeah. your feed. It's a gateway that, conspiracy. Yeah, okay. so gateway so I, I don't I don't know whether that's yeah. changed or not. Like I, for example, I mean, I I, I sort of poke the chem. I find the chemtrail conspiracy theory really interesting. Can you sum up what, exactly so, what chem? Because I it's get, bonkers. Yeah, I I, I, I see it, it. It's up there a lot. And, yeah, and, and I get it very often if I've been on a show and I've en yeah. mentioned something about astronauts yeah. or whatever. Within about three moves, chemtrails appear. So chemtrails. What, what, so people look up in the sky and they see aircraft contrails. Uh, and they think it is some some form of nefarious government. So the contrails are the white things, the, that white you, the things lines that, you sometimes see in the sky. See in the sky, and the way they dissipate and everything else, they think it is actually a nefarious government or some kind of spraying operation for various reasons, mind, from, from mind control to geoengineering. Right. Uh, and there's lot, there's lots of kind of subsets within that. Now, it's it, it it's not that at all. However... People believe that, and but there is also, you know, within the chemtrails, you also find anti-vaxxers, and I think it ties in with this sort of slightly libertarian otherness. And the interesting thing about the Flat Earth Convention was, it's not that they're anti-science; it's just they're anti-scientist, mm -hmm. and that's the that's the key thing with all this thing. It's this idea that there is there is agency at work which is doing things that we don't agree with what's and, and striking beyond our control. to me is that whenever you come across one of these i turn up someone says i'm a physicist and they are desperate for me to say something anything which mm -hmm. might support their thing so they still respect the voice of a scientist yeah. enough that they i've had i've had spent days basically stepping slightly sideways to get away from people who want me to say something about um grounding which is alaska's one of the things in alaska they think everyone grounding makes people cures things and makes plants grow better like electrical grounding and and so that it's not there's a weird thing because they do want the voice of authority to back them up they are desperate oh, totally. for people for yeah. me to say anything yeah. which gives them credibility however if i say the thing they don't want to hear they they just it's like teflon well that's it all but all conspiracies use that they use science they hate well scientists we don't like them but then of course they will use the science to back it up and you know, I would imagine that certainly for me, it's true that more often than not, I'll be the dumbest person in the room. Which sometimes you think this is great to always be. At times, it becomes overbearing. But nevertheless, that bit that once you just go right, I'm not an expert. But it doesn't mean that I therefore turn to experts and go, oh, I bow down to you. I only turn to them when I go, ah, I want to know about your specific area of expertise. And you seem to have had, it's like the footnote rule, isn't it? Mm. You read a book and you go, this is a lot of information, but it has no footnotes which can tell me where this information came from. I have a lot of footnotes, you'd be glad. Yeah, we are, yeah, I did, you, I did you remember This your is book, more footnote than here. book, I think, <laughs> it's really. It's, uh, well, I, it's mostly picture. I've well, there's lots and lots of words. I spent my life with pictures. scientists, so I feel I've been dragged up. I feel like my, you know, my all that is, I've, I've absorbed, you know, but well, being being detailed and being what, rigorous and not just writing well, that bollocks. Is, that is the important bit. Wanna, it's the the, the you know, I've going after the details, chasing. Yeah, like going after. And also, this thing know. when I was researching this book, there were things that I found that were just taken as read, and then I was I dug a little bit deeper and realised no, 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 it's absolutely. Give an example. What was it? Well, I was one of the monkeys that went up in space. I can't remember which one it was now. There was they were talking about after he'd been in space and he'd retired, and we went back to the 
wherever he was, and oh, he had a, he went on gay, television talk shows and did a film with Evil Knievel, and that was that's, <laughs> that is, that's just you know propagated through. No one's ever questioned it, and I questioned it, and I thought, well, where, where is this film with Evil Knievel? And I spent months trying to find this film, and I realised it didn't exist, and it was just a, a mistake in a footnote somewhere down the line on Wikipedia or somewhere. These things had been conflated, and and it was just taken as read. But it's it's, a, it's like the Ruskin thing. There's certain things, you know. Ruskin, uh, when he got married, apparently was so shocked by the pubic hair of his wife. Apparently, <laughs> though, more recently, it's been like, well, actually, there was another bloke involved, yeah. and he started this rumor about Ruskin being scared of pubic hair, or or the, you know, the, the Pope's chair where he'd uh, dangle his balls and they'd be felt to make sure he wasn't a woman. Oh, yeah. Apparently, it was more of a really? commode. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, so you can I imagine don't know where a you're hanging. What are you doing? So here's, no, you, know that, you know about yeah, that? Yeah, no, thing, I don't. I'm just, I just trying to move you off that topic um so the thing that gets me and this your book is a really good demonstration of this is that for me you know what scientists do is they chase down the details if something doesn't quite match you follow it and yeah. what because you did that the stories get better and that's the thing that i think people don't appreciate about they're like science will tell you to do it wrong it's like no if you are rigorous and you follow the details usually what you find is far more interesting than the thing that everyone else thought and that's what you've written in this book isn't it it's all these weird little things yeah. But is is that part of that? Does that fiction come from the fact that it, there's, there are a certain number well, of sad animal deaths there's a involved lot of, in? There is, but also it's like it's if stories are too good to check, that's the thing. You, you kind of want him to have had done been in a film with Evil Can Evil because it makes total sense. So that's probably why it hadn't been checked. I think. Uh, yeah, but yes, lo- lots of strange animal stories. Um, but yes. they get better, right? I'm just looking well, through the book for one of the ones. Well, my I've just found I, a recipe can I do my for fav- chocolate biscuits animal, or something. My favourite animals, because um, we're about to... Next year's the Apollo 11 50th. Mm. And this year, this Christmas, December, is the Apollo 10th anniversary. When we first went round the moon... Or do I mean Apollo 8? I have to look. Uh, <laughs> when was the... When was the... Um, you know, the... Uh, uh, Earthrise picture. That was Apollo 8, wasn't it? I think it was Apollo oh, 8. Yeah, yeah, Apollo 8. So that's the 50th anniversary where they took the famous picture and they went round the moon for the first time and that was that was a big thing. But September of that year, 1968, 50 years ago this year, two Russian steppe tortoises went round the moon on Zond 5 in complete secrecy. The Soviets send this program. Sneak, sneak tortoises. Yeah, they, and I, I, I just love that idea of these tortoises who lived on the, the, the steppe of Kazakhstan. For them, the world was completely flat. And they looked around flat and suddenly... Earthers, that's yeah, where it came they were, from. And then suddenly they were thrown aboard this, the Zond 5 probe inside the cavity of a mannequin shaped like Yuri Gagarin. So just like a, a mannequin strapped to a chair inside these creatures living. Uh, there was a tape recording playing live audio recording in case any... Americans or British were listening in, and it was a recording of a Russian woman uh, reading out the recipe for borscht and a Russian brass band, and they were saying... And that right, wouldn't arise suspicion. We've picked up signals well, from outer space. Yeah, Jodrell Bank picked it up, and they listened to this, and they and they found that they didn't know what it was. And uh, the tortoises went around the moon and uh, came back to Earth and survived and were absolutely fine. The first creatures to go to the moon before the, the tortoise beat the hare in the race to the moon, and it was a rather nice story. But that's what that's what's interesting is that a lot of that gets not erased, but the story is, well, and that's part of the reason why I suppose this book exists, which is the story becomes there were a few missions, yeah. they got a little bit nearer right. to the moon, then they got to the moon, then they stopped and people went up in a shuttle. And, and I think partly because of the Western story, it means that a lot of, after Yuri Gagarin 
and also the fact that things like you have, you know, um, the first female astronaut in the Russian Paris space Go- program Paris is what Go- thirty yeah. years almost before. Yeah, yeah, it's a long time between. What's it? The, it's it's certainly the, what the the mid eighties or beyond when you have the yes, first female the first, American first, first American. Yeah, 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 it was a long time. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think even less than that. I think you know, if you talk to my mum or anybody who's doesn't particularly take an interest in this area they've heard of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and they've heard of maybe Tim Peake mm. and they remember the shuttle you know and that's what, kind of it that's our the mother's sort of, generation well, they remember Helen Sharman yeah. they it was really interesting when, when Tim Peake went up and people were discussing uh, you know because there was always this thing first British astronaut but there had been two Brits before it's just that they hadn't flown under the British flag right uh, Michael Fole and Helen Sharman and um Every, it was there was a particular I don't know what I was doing but I was talking and there was um, it was a there was same demographic it was women who were now in their fifties and sixties and they said no it was Helen Sharman who was the first Brit in space yeah. and it was it people it was really interesting that they remembered you know this unheard demographic well I, re- I mean I remember it, I, yeah. she it was a woman yeah and it mattered to them yeah well know? I mean Tim has always been very. Any time anyone makes that mistake, he, was, he is the first person to say, no, 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 Helen Sharman is the first, was the first Britain Well, we were hoping at the Albert Hall gig, at one point Helen Sharman was going to be doing it, yeah. and then I was hoping Tim Peake would be available, yeah. so we were going to be able to do in front of 5,000. Right. Please welcome the first Britain in space. And then Tim would just start, not you, Tim. He goes, oh, sorry, yeah, and then Helen would come out. But uh, yeah. that little bit of slapstick was uh, uh, thrown asunder. But it's, yeah, it's... um. That when Chris Hadfield mentioned Peggy Whitson, there was yep. a you know big round of applause in there. But that, that's a, there's a great book which I'm sure you've seen. It's uh, a, a, it's one of those things. It's a book for children, but I'm reading it uh, because it's a brilliant. But but Why it's uh, children have all it, 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 it's it's a collection. I think it's called A Space of Her Own. But it's. Um, uh, all of the women who were involved mm-hmm. in, uh, including some of the people who the film Hidden Figures was yep. made around, yeah, all of yeah. the different people, both those who've actually been in space, the engineers involved. I think probably Justin Belbonell gets mentioned as well because the pulsars yeah. and yeah, because there were a lot, you know, there especially lot. in the computer programming type stuff. Well, I've got a, there's know, a picture here. Actually, we mentioned earlier on the Apollo guidance computer, which was this great bit of technology that actually that's the kind of thing that actually got the Americans to the moon and sort of beat beat the Russians really. The oh, it's the woman with the stack, right? Is it the one? No, is it the it's not actually. Versus... So they, the, the the memory, the rope core memory, was the actual memory that that they used in this computer, which was a really basic bit of memory. It was basically a wire around the core was a one, and through the hole was a zero. So the actual memory was actually hand stitched by women at Raytheon called LOL, Little Old Ladies. It was the Little Old Lady method, and there's it's very, it's very, uh, it's very, it's very. Dig, sort of little old ladies, very dismissive, isn't well, it? Well, I, I know, yeah, it is. I mean, this is what this is what all the astronauts called them, and also the little old ladies who made the the spacesuits as well. That was that was a, a group of seamstresses. So from apparently, Delaware. it was a galaxy of her own. A galaxy Jackson, of her own, yeah, Libby Jackson's book. But yeah, but I actually, but actually, finding any information about the the women who worked at Raytheon actually did the the sewing, actually put the worked the loom in order to make this rope core memory was very difficult. And I actually found one. Um, I actually got something. Playtex uh, were involved, weren't they? Playtex, yeah. Well, oh, Playtex. So, someone was yeah. t- telling me. I yeah. think Chris was telling me the other night yeah. about play- the, you know, the, the the needle check that had to be done afterwards right. of having. Made, I have all the yeah. X-rays in the book. I mean, I again, I made a film about the history of the spacesuits, and so we were out there. Yeah, it was Playtex, um, which then became ILC Dover International Latex Corporation. Basically, these seamstresses whose job it was to make boxing gloves and 
suitcases and work in the garment district in Delaware were all shipped in because they they were so fantastic at, at but this sewing. Is, I've got a right be on my bonnet about technology and the definition because yep. well, technology is, is seen as being a male thing but all that sewing and stitching that that is technology but it's somehow it doesn't count as technology because no. it doesn't involve steel you know well, you're like actually it. it's exactly the same skill I learned to arc weld once and it turned out um, turned out I'd be very good at it and that was because I had learned when I was five because it's exactly the same as icing a cake like the way you hold the thing oh there you go you've got yeah, the picture so this, yeah so these, these the women who are actually stitching the 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 A7L spacesuits, and they are all the spacesuits were, were X-rayed to check, and they, you know they'd find pins in them and, and 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 what have you. But it's an amazing skill when you look at those suits close up and you look at the craftsmanship in them; they're just beautiful. And I actually think the famous picture of Buzz Aldrin standing on the moon, which is probably the most famous photograph ever taken you're actually looking at a manufactured object. You're not looking at Buzz Aldrin. You're looking at a spacesuit. You're looking at the A7L spacesuit. You're saying he might not be in there. Is that your conspiracy? That is stitched by that woman. No, 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 no. But it was what I mean. It was two tortoises. You're looking at a thing that was stitched by this woman. This is, here we go. And I list all their names as well. So there you go. They all get their credit. Who get no credit, but also the, you know the women who worked at Raytheon st- stitching those computers together. No one knows who they are. No one remembers any of their names, and it's such a shame because, you know, these are the people who made it happen. Well, the nice thing about the nice book is that it. the, it's a reminder. Like we hear the names, you know, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and it's not that people think they're the only people involved. But that your book is like the stories of all the other, the massive army of people well, this is who it. needed it's, to get this thing yeah. to happen. Yeah, I mean, the book is, it, it's, it's a mixtape of different stories. It's stuff that I'm interested in, stuff that I've been fascinated about, stuff that I'd found out on the way. Um, you know, if I was going to write this book again this year, I'd probably have a whole load of different stories in but yeah, I mean, it definitely, it is the sort of more esoteric end of things, I think. You know, and I, it's that thing of like, you know, science writing, so much of science writing is like, I'm going to impart information to you. And it's this is more than just a kind of book of facts. It's not the bumper book of space. It's it's a much more different cultural look at space flight. I mean, I write a lot about artists who do work around it. And, and uh, there's recipes in it from some of the chefs who write, who make the food for the astronauts, that kind of that kind of stuff. The human side the of The human space. side of it, people, yeah. Yeah, there is this bit, I feel... And it's history very, as well. I, mean, I, actually think, I think it puts a lot of people off, you know, the space things, like, oh, it's all shiny metal and big machines and things. Yeah. And actually it's human and people forget that. It, absolutely. I think, yeah, people people tend to think... Well, firstly, people think that... I think space does have a bit of a blokey whiff about it, generally. And so actually yes. putting a lot of female stories in, I mean, things like the Mercury 15, the women who did the original Lovelace medical mm-hmm. test back, you know, back in the day, is a really, really interesting story and there's been a lot written about it recently which makes me really happy but these women particularly who worked you know crafting this stuff whether it's building a computer or building a spacesuit these are amazing stories that have slightly been forgotten and are, and are, are important i think you know i think space is this, it's like a canvas it's not just science it's history and it's politics and it's engineering and it's manufacturing and it's conspiracy and it's fantasy and it's art it's all these things which is fundamentally in, why someone should put Brian Blessed into space, isn't it? Well, but, I think so. But that's but that's why I wrote the book. You know, I thought I thought you know the conceit is it's a guidebook. It's not. It's the most impractical guidebook I could possibly <laughs> think of. But Don't be a talk. What was your first book then? What was your? I mean, when you were well, growing up, you, what was the one that? Yeah. Well, I had. I mean, I had. I had a lot of space books. I had the Ladybird. I had a pre-Apollo Ladybird 
um, Exploring Space book. It had the Mercury oh, uh, capsule on the front cover. I gave mine to Brian Cox. Why? Well, I don't know. It just and... seemed like he deserved a gift. <laughs> he looked sad for the first time. Well, this was the first... you've got to get rid of. That oh, no. should not have been that one of the ones you got rid of. The first page of that, actually, look, I looked at that recently, and that, actually that Ladybird book was is kind of what I've done here. Each page of that Ladybird book, and each plate was a wonderful illustration and then a wonderful explanation, and it went from everything from... Human exploration into space, to telescopes, to, all, to, to the future with rockets that were going to take us to the stars. And I remember page one, it had a picture of a flock of birds with strings attached to their feet like James and the Giant Peach. And there was this bloke on a chair with its strings tied to him, yeah, <laughs> flying off to the moon. And, I, and at the time, I, I remember the picture so well, but I never really questioned or thought about what it was about, other than there was a, kind of an early idea of getting into space. And it was... A, English bishop in the 1600s called Francis Godwin, who wrote this proto-science fiction story about this diminutive Spaniard uh, who collected these geese called Ganza, uh, a particular kind of geese that he imagined that would migrate from the Earth to the moon. And he reasoned that if you could catch these geese, they would pull you to the moon. Back. And so I, that's kind of, that was the kind of starting point of this book, how we imagined we would go into space. And there was a wonderful artist, Agnes um, Meyer Brandes, who did a big... Uh, installation recently where she actually got geese real geese and imprinted them as they were born and and did this whole art project about about these special lunar geese that would fly to the moon and i'd seen this art project a couple of years ago and it it kind of reminded me of my ladybird book and that's kind of why i started writing this book so there's a lot of really quiet showing pictures i'm showing you pictures of lunar geese so there's geese all the way through and actually helen sharman's (laughs) mission patch was geese as well so there's there's this wonderful kind of geese theme i was thinking it's a shame it wasn't the cow that jumped over the moon you know the geese are slightly more artistic yeah would be a bit uh, no cows no cows so far in space i don't think no lunar milk no lunar milk um, it'll be the next gimmick. But that's the oh, first, that's as soon as SpaceX gets up there, it'll be the first thing that... The Montgolfier brothers' balloon, that first balloon that went up there, took a sheet with them, which I quite like. But, Why yeah. a sheet? As a sort of human analogue, I think. I think they thought a sheet was a roughly I guess it behaves human... itself. Sheep's going to sit there and not... Like a pig's too bright, right? Pig yeah. would cause problems. Goat would they eat had, everything. They had other things. Sheep's the thing that kind of sits there yeah. and just behaves itself exactly right? but no I, I the history of animals in space is fascinating it's really really in, i mean because really you go on those exhibitions they've got the little space suits for the monkeys and the dogs yeah. and, the, and i find them slightly disturbing that i mean i find it disturbing right? when i'm walking along the river and i see someone got a dog in a hoodie but it's that sort of it's very it's so calculating in a way yeah. that this little dog right you you know six months you're probably not going to come back it's fine we're going to make a little suit for you you yeah. know it's a bit I don't well know. how many did because that's what I was surprised by I saw some information a while ago at some museum which actually said that many of them did survive because I'd always oh, yeah. presume they all went like like uh, that that was it it was kind no, of went well, quiet no well Belker and Strelker which was the dogs that that, that went up after was it oh, yeah after like a they sort of came back and had puppies and one of the puppies was given to President Kennedy so there was no there was a you know, dozens and dozens of back. Soviet space dogs that went off. I think about half of them perished, half of them survived. Um, you know, the, the, but it was a political thing as well. You know, the Americans looked at the Soviets. How dare these awful people send dogs up because dogs are important to us. You know, we'd, the uh, Americans were quite happy sending monkeys up. Mm. <laughs> you know, the Russians would say, look at these barbarians sending monkeys up into space. So, 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. So what's the weirdest thing. thing that's been sent to us? But I mean, it sounds like you've dug around in everything here. Well, what's the, what's what's the, the thing the... that stands out as the most ridiculous thing that's been sent to space? The most ridiculous thing? Well, I don't know. I mean, th- th- there are things that are that are interesting, like tardigrades have been up in space. You'll know all about tardigrades. Those weird little ugly little, we'll survive yeah, everything. Yeah, they'll survive everything. Are they not ugly? Well, they're not. Actually, little things are tardigrades. <laughs> the tardigrades, I mean, actually, this is one of my favourites. Is I'm showing you a picture now. It's of a cat and a rat. Mm. So this is a cat called Filisette. And this is Filisette's boyfriend, up. a rat called Hector. And then they're in their little flight suits, in their little space suits. And that Filisette is the only cat to have gone up uh, in space. 1961, one went up on a French-sounding rocket. Uh, cats are not great to have in space, generally. I mean, we love cats, but there you go. But again, if you think about the Jules Verne from the Earth to the Moon story, of course, they were sending up cats as well. So all the... All, all, I don't know if you remember if you remember that book. What, what I'm trying to I'm trying to remember the different systems that have been used to in fiction to send people to the moon because there was yeah. H.G. Wells. You have a kind of anti gravity uh, uh, paint is part of that, isn't it? The uh, um, the the bullet trip to the moon. Well, the, the Jules Verne Melier... was the was the well, the Georges Méliès, the famous with the bullet stuck in yeah, the moon. Yeah, so that's yeah. like a and actually that was that's a really interesting story because the the, the real fathers of rocket science science the, like the Russian Tsiolkovsky, the mathematician Robert Goddard and Werner von Braun and Hermann Oberth, all the the great rocket scientists of the beginning of the 20th century were absolutely obsessed by that Jules Verne story mm. to the point where they had memorized it. You know, it was such a, a, a seminal piece of work, and and. Tsiolkovsky's mathematics that he was doing at the time was really ignited by trying to work out would it be possible to fire people using ballistics from the Earth to the moon and kind of realise that the forces involved would, 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 would kill everyone, obviously. And then from then on went to invent this idea of the reaction engine, this idea of a rocket, and did all the calculations, did all the maths. And then in Berlin at the time, um, before the war, the great Berlin Rocket Club of Werner von Braun and Hermann Obert took that idea and rocketry was and born but it, it came from that persistence, haven't you because if you look at the stories like a lot of those rockets that you did not want to be within 10 miles of any of those test rockets you know they were no. they had this idea but a lot of people died and were injured and things blew up at the wrong time and well the, the wrong v2 way well the and, v2 absolutely I and mean, they, they persisted i mean i don't yeah. know if that's their credit or not but it's yeah. a bit it, well all the all the it says a lot for the strength of the idea absolutely well all the german rocketry so the v2 which is which of course famously developed peenemunde by Von Braun, of course, after the war, Von Braun went over to America and developed the American rockets, you know, went on to develop the sort of the Redstone and the Atlas and, and of course, the Saturn V. Some of the, the Germans went over to the Soviet Union and built the Soyuz. Um, and the Soyuz rocket that took up Tim Peak and is the only way into space at the moment. That is basically the R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile that was designed to launch a nuclear warhead from the Soviet Union onto American soil. There's a thing about if it ain't broke, don't fix it, well, that, right? <laughs> I love that. I mean, the Soyuz, it's, you know, it's basically the same design since the 1950s, and it works. It just doesn't... It's sort of reliable. Like, it's like, it's, it's well, not going to... It's not going to carry... I'm no, curious to see how much longer... Because, you know, there's a lot of things well, kind of snapping at its heels now that might be reusable, that might oh, yeah, there be is. more efficient. It will, it will all change, I think. Different ways of flying. I mean, the thing is, if you're sending in people into space, if you're, you know, putting people on top of a rocket, you don't want cutting edge. You want tried and reliable. tested and reliable and I Soyuz thought... is really really reliable but as you say the new rockets I mean obviously SpaceX the NASA's SLS are coming on I think you know the next five years I can't see Soyuz I mean maybe, maybe the Russians will still use Soyuz but the Americans and the European astronauts presumably will be 
I feel it's one of those things where you don't want to make it look too easy. There's this kind of sad thing in technology where things, you know, the Victorian era, they got bigger and it basically got bigger and bigger and more dramatic. And then there comes a point in every technology, like in supercomputers, this was 10 years ago, where suddenly everything starts getting smaller. And I, you know, I get there's all these environmental concerns and all these reasons, but to see a Saturn V launch like that, just the scale of the achievement because the problem is once you make it efficient it sort of becomes easy and people forget how much of an achievement it is and it it does feel that space flight's on that it's kind of becoming casual we're casually going it's you know casually a bit of jaunt into space yeah well i don't know i mean maybe that's to do with things like virgin galactic and and sort of blue origin but i i I mean the idea of space tourism the idea we'd all be able to go on a jaunt into space i mean we've been thinking about that since the 19th well since mm. the 1600s really the Jacobean space program you know we've been we've been thinking now, there's about a bit, that. there's a thing I never learned in history <laughs> class at school well the Jacobean, <laughs> Jacobean space program is amazing you should all look at that they have well, all kinds of ideas but also 2000 50 years ago 2001 came out the Kubrick film and of course the the sort of opening scene of that after we've done the monkeys touching mm. the you know the, the, the monoliths of course we see the Pan Am taxi from the earth going to the moon this idea that you know, we'd all be able to, to to fly to the moon. And Pan Am and, and NASA, these two great logos, somehow became symbiotic of that idea that we'd all be we'd all be travelling into space. And of course Pan Am brought out their first first flyers moon flight club whereby you could sign up and when the rocket would be built you'd be first on the list to go up into space and it never happened. And here we are you know, fifty years later, Virgin Galactic maybe in the next couple of years will be taking paying But passages. this is going back a bit, but before we go on to the idea of space tourism, which is um when you talk about Werner von Braun, yeah. this is an interesting, the moral implications of, the, there was a book by Tom Bauer called Paperclip Conspiracy, I think it's yep. the first one. Project Paperclip. So, yeah, well, this is since, it, yeah. since then. And, uh, you know, the, this idea of, you know, the, the, the Russians and the Americans were desperately trying to make sure that they got the best scientists out of Nazi Germany. And I think it was as simple as if a paperclip was on it, they would just change from ardent Nazi to not an ardent <laughs> yeah. Nazi. And that, that was yeah. how it was done. Now, from what I again, I, I I don't know how true, but there was you know some of the research that von Braun was doing. There were people uh, who were murdered for the research. Um, should we be talking about that more? Should we be talking because I think it is an ethical thing, which is you go something horrendous happened, and people who were in concentration camps were used. I, people, I believe as slave labour. More people died making the V two than were ever killed by the V two. Right. So so that that's part of the story. Yeah. Of us landing on the moon. Correct. It doesn't mean that we should have gone. We must never use this technology. But well, that, to me, seems to be an interesting no, it's, part. It's of... a really. It's. I don't know if I don't know if you can say that. I mean, it was. I mean, it was. You know, there were Nazis who were wholesale taken from Nazi Germany, who'd been involved in some horrific work and were put to work from the American space program and the Soviet space program. So, you know, it's you know, Werner von Braun right up to the you know he. Right up until the, the mid seventies, when he died, was part of that whole world. And of course, Werner von Braun is a, the, the the famous Tom Lehrer song, all about that. T- Tom Lehrer wrote this wonderful song, the music of which I published in the yeah. book, so you can play it at home. I should. God, this was a tough one actually. I had about, about a week before publication. I was like, "There's a really good Werner von. There's a very good Tom Lehrer song about Werner von Braun about what an absolute 
ask for von von Braun was and how we sh exactly as you say Ron we should not be championing this person because he was a Nazi and people died and it was awful and he wrote a song about it a funny song and I wanted to publish the music in it so people could play this song because mm. I was writing all about it and I thought it was much easier just to have Tom Lehrer singing it um, and of course I, I assumed Tom Lehrer was dead and it was it was going to be really really <laughs> hard and I'd spent months trying to get in contact with him and then eventually I got hold of someone and said oh we'll try this email and it was I got this phone call from Tom Lira the next wow. day. Really? Yeah, and he was like, uh, and I'm like, I thought you were dead. <laughs> He's like, I'm not dead. I'm very much alive. And I said, well, can I, is it all right if I publish your Werner von Braun song? He said, absolutely. As long as when you talk about it, you say one absolute rude word, Dr. Werner von Braun. So there we go. Dallas Campbell, Ad Astra, an illustrated guide to leaving the planet, is available now. Thank you very much, Dr. Helen Chersky. Thank, uh, thank you. And uh, thank you very much to everyone who supports us for our Patreon. And uh, thank you to uh, those of you thinking about supporting us for our Patreon. And this is part of a series of science-based book shambles uh, off the back of Space Shambles that we did at the Albert Hall. And so you can also listen to conversations with Adam Buxton, Alan Moore, Professor Lucy Green, uh, Dr. Hannah Fry. Uh, and also, you, if you go into the archives, you will find our interview with uh, Commander Chris Hadfield. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you very much to all of the people who sponsor us via Patreon. And this week, we particularly like to thank Tony Hanlon, Michael Eaton, the enigmatic, merely the letter J, Henry Ireland, Jewel Smith, Louise Triest, uh, Anthony Lister and Zandra Bill. Thank you to those supporters and to all our supporters. Obviously, you can join them at patreon.com slash bookshambles, uh, which helps us keep making the show and making extra things as well, like the Richard Feynman documentary and all the other stuff that we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network. We'll be back next week with the first of our episodes that we recorded at the Royal Albert Hall, which will be Robin with our guest co-host for that string of episodes was the brilliant Sarah Kendall, and they'll be chatting to Adam Buxton. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.